Two readings. The first reading is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, starting at verse 32 down to verse 45. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye. And then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Please turn with me to chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. This is God's word. Well, good evening, evening. Let me add my welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller, if we've uh, not met. Uh, Father, these are uh, strange issues to consider, that of evil to some. They're very close. Uh, to others of us, it's very distant and uh, somewhat abstract. But we thank and praise you that you are a God who cares deeply about what is right and what is wrong. And you distinguish clearly 
between good and evil. And pray that you'd move us this evening to understand more of why that is so very good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, I've got a little test for you this evening, and uh, some people get excited by that and think, oh, great, a little test. Uh, others uh, fills you with uh, dread and horror somewhat. My, uh, in our household, we're full of tests at the moment, getting ready for 11 plus type things. So it's verbal reasoning, non-verbal reasoning. Do you remember those? Um, uh, I find them so, di- I, they're just ridiculously complicated to my mind. Uh, and I was getting quite discouraged about how we were doing at home. Uh, and so I thought, are these objectively quite hard? So I thought, well, right, well I'll just, Try them out. So I brought them in to church uh, one day, and uh, just one little section of a paper, just eight questions. You got four minutes to do it, uh, and gave it to the staff, and no one got anywhere with it. And then in the evening, gave it to about twenty odd uh, people uh, at uh, PTS in the evening. The course running there, and you know, in the midst, amidst the lawyers and the teachers and the bankers and the doctors, the highest was five out of eight on a paper set for a ten-year-old. Which is Ooh, yeah. Um, but anyway, it's not that sort of test. Uh, that's just sort of my cathartic moment again, getting that off my chest. This test is a bit more serious. That's actually not my test. It was designed by a man named Arnost Lustig, who was a professor at American University in Washington, D.C. for a number of years, uh, both a medical uh, uh, doctor and a PhD doctor, 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 um, one of those very clever people. That's in one sense, by the by, apart from, the, I guess, the more important thing on his CV is that he was a survivor of Auschwitz-Birkenau in the Second World War as a Jewish scholar who was transported there. And uh, he suggested a little test. He said, here's a test of maturity. And uh, in my view, you, should, in, if you have to pass this test in order to demonstrate you're a mature citizen. And you're not allowed to marry, you're not allowed to drive a car, you're not allowed to vote unless you pass my test, he suggested. Ooh, quite a high tariff, quite a high standard, but what is the test? Well, it's this. Let me quote from him. I wish that all men and women, wherever they live on earth, would have to visit Auschwitz-Birkenau for a day, an hour, or even a single second during the time when Hitler, Himmler, Eichmann swelled with pride at what they had commissioned architects, planners, and builders to do. What's the test? Well, two elements to it. You get transported back in time, and you have to pass what he calls the challenge of realism, Does your worldview, does your faith, does your system of belief allow you to stand there and objectively denounce what is going on as evil? Challenge of realism. And the second challenge is one of hope. Can you stand there and offer hope to everyone who's in the camp? It says, if you can't do either of those things, you're completely immature and you shouldn't be allowed to be a citizen of the world. Um, That's quite striking, quite strong, uh, I, I would have thought. But what would you say? What would you say to uh, Hitler, Himmler, Eichmann, et al. Back in, what did we say, beginning of 1943? I think what you're doing is wicked. Well, says who? Says me and the rest of the world. We disagree. How, do you, how, does, how does that going to run? What would you say? Would you pass the test? Could you say objectively that is evil in a way that everyone must acknowledge? And if you can't? Well, you're not mature. 
says Arnos Lustig. Now, that might seem somewhat of an abstract test to you, a bit sort of out there. Intriguingly, he wrote that in 1995, so 50 years after the liberation of Auschwitz. Uh, So he's writing it in 1995 in Washington to a very self-satisfied nation which had just defeated communism and therefore, in the words of Francis Fukuyama, had ended history. There was no more conflict anymore. The world was just going to be run by liberal democracy. Oops. Um, From that point forwards. So he's writing it to a group of people who are quite content and don't have to in 1995 deal with evil very much and I guess there's many of us like that here we don't really encounter evil very much do we I just look back in my own life personally well I can look back at age 22 when I was a school teacher I remember going away on a residential trip uh, with a bunch of kids And it emerged one night in conversation, a 15-year-old girl told me she'd had three abortions. Wow. Age 15, how come? Well, it transpired, and this story took weeks and months to unravel with social workers, that her father was pimping her out. And so strangers would come, pay him money, and he'd uh, insist that his daughter acted as a prostitute. But that's pretty evil, I think. But I don't encounter that very often. Some would do in social work, perhaps that field, perhaps in, in police work. But not many of us encounter that sort of evil every day. But if you know it personally, golly, this is not an abstract question. Not in any sense. And I guess the, the language of evil sort of becomes a bit more common, I guess, in the UK now. So David Cameron has taken that up very much, talks about the evil of terrorism, compares the fight against the evil of terrorism to that of the Second World War. That's the language he started to use. And I guess if you had a family member killed 10 years ago on the 7th of July, you would say that's evil. Or oh, I don't know if you saw the other night um, a documentary, My Son the Jihadi. Did you see that? Uh, Sally Evans talking about her son and how she'd watched her son become radicalized and join al-Shabaab in Somalia and become a suicide killer. Miserable. Miserable. And she said quite simply, we must speak out against the evil of jihadism. If you don't have a category for evil and good, at some point in your life, you, you, you want that. Either personally, you encounter it in a way that is just overwhelming, or culturally, you recognize we need it as a nation to say some things are wrong. And not just wrong, they're evil. And Arnos Lustig says, if you can't do that, if you have no framework for that that stands up, well, I don't think you should pass. You're not mature as a human being. That's his words, not mine. You take it up with him. Now, what are we doing? As uh, Matt Banks said at the beginning, uh, just three weeks, three weeks, we're looking at honest questions, uh, and, um, uh, and then the, the course runs midweek. Now, in these three weeks in church, uh, my ambitions are limited in one sense uh, to a world which is uh, increasingly skeptical of the Christian faith and a culture in which many just think Christianity is implausible. What? Implausible. I just would like to persuade you that actually there's a part of us that wants Christianity to be true. Actually, part of us doesn't. We want to do our own thing. We want to be our own kings and rebel. Part of But part of us at the same time wants it deep down 
to be true. Now, I'm not going to argue that it is true, actually. Uh, I would do that midweek, uh, at the, uh, midweek uh, uh, just around the corner in Costa Coffee. But here on Sundays, I just want to persuade you, you want it to be true. Actually, part of you would love it if Christianity were true. You want it, need it to be true. Let's see how we get on. Three things tonight, three things. So thinking about the topic of evil, I want to ask and spend most of our time, what is evil? What is it? Uh, and then more briefly, let Jesus define evil. And thirdly, let Jesus judge evil. Okay? What is evil? Big question. Then more briefly, let Jesus define evil. And thirdly, let Jesus judge evil. Okay? That's where we're going. First then, what is evil? Now the test that Arnest Lustig throws up, in one sense, it's... It, concentration camps, uh, Hitler, it's a sort of lazy shorthand for evil now. It just we sort of rolls over us because, yes, that's evil. We know that. Um, uh, but you don't need to go back all that time. Again, you go around the world and extremist culture, uh, uh, groups such as ISIS beheading in, in Syria and Iraq or uh, a totalitarian regime in North Korea, um, just removing its citizens uh, into a concentration camps there. Goodness knows, the numbers are just impossible to ascertain how many are in concentration camps, work camps in North Korea. It still happens today. But how do we define evil? See, if you're a Christian, if you believe that there's a divine lawgiver who says this is right and that is wrong, it's quite easy. You just do what God says. It's remarkably straightforward. Some might find that a very nice shortcut. Uh, The Bible, very clear, all men and women are made in God's image. To murder them is wrong. God says so. But if you don't think there's any form of divine lawgiver, if you don't think there's a personal God, what do you do then? Well, you can say, I don't like it. You can say, I find it abhorrent. But you can't say that is absolutely evil in a way that everyone must agree with. So imagine you have this conversation, this mythical conversation. You, you, you're somehow able to go into Arnold Lustig's test uh, and you meet with Heinrich Himmler. Here he is, uh, well known for loving his family, being a devoted family man. So there he is with his daughter. He's a nice man in some ways. And you have this conversation with him. So it goes a bit like this. You say, well, genocide at Auschwitz is wicked and evil. And he says, well, we think it's sensible. To rid society of dangerous people. As you go on. But it's wicked to kill people just because they belong to a certain race. And he says, well, we disagree. And most of our countrymen agree with us. And we're acting within national law. So what do you do then? Well, the conversation goes on. Yes, well, you're wrong. And the majority of the world thinks you're wrong. The majority of the world thinks you're wicked. Well, we disagree and we're stronger than you. And we'll beat you. Now, happily, he was wrong on that last point. But what if he was not? And the majority of the world is governed by a regime that says it's entirely fine to commit genocide. How do you say objectively it's wrong in a way that carries moral force rather than, I don't like it. And people like me don't like it. What do you do? How do you argue with him? Now deep down there are some things. It's built into our humanity. Deep down there are some things that make us cry out. That is horrible. That is wicked. That is evil. 
But what if people disagree? Take a modern example. Uh, Vishal Mangalwadi, he's a, an Indian Hindu uh, who uh, was converted to Christianity and he and his wife spent most of their lives uh, working amongst uh, uh, rural poor in India. He's written a book, he's an academic as well. He's written a book, uh, The Book Which Made Your World. It's essentially a letter he's written to the West saying, you're abandoning your Christian culture, you're mad. We don't have that in India. And it is a much worse place to live in many ways. You're mad. Here's lots of examples. One example is of Sheila. Sheila is the fourth child of a low-caste family, so a poor family. And he meets Sheila at 18 months because she's outside the family's shack and she's been abandoned to die. He investigates what's going on. We've left her to die. Why? Well, she's, not very, she's a weak child. Well, I will pay for her food, said Vishal. And I will pay for her medical treatment. We're not interested. Go away. So he went to the elders of the village and says, you, you must speak to the family. Let me pay for food and medical care. And they say, don't get involved. Not your business. Okay, you might help out for a little bit. But they'll have to pay for it till she's 12 years old. And then they'll have to find a, a dowry and go into debt to give her a dowry. So it makes no sense for that family They have three healthy children. They have two boys who can work. They have a daughter to cook and clean for them. The fourth child is redundant. And economically, it makes sense to abandon her. Don't get involved. You do not understand. What do you say? You say, I can't believe they'd do that to a child. Well, they would say, it is common sense. It's a sensible secular decision to abandon this child economically. Of course it makes sense. And what do you do at that point? And the whole culture is, you say, I don't, it's evil. No, it's not, they reply. What do you do? You see, you, you cannot say objectively that is wrong unless there's a divine lawgiver who speaks into the world. You, can't, you can only say, I don't like it. What do you do? I guess the main alternative in the secular West is, is some form of, uh, I guess people often refer to as evolutionary ethics. So, well, we don't like the idea of a divine lawgiver. We don't like him. But it's okay because humanity is, is moving towards consensus on, on what the world says is right and wrong. And that's okay. We're, we're getting there. Uh, ethics evolve for the good of humanity. Okay, fine. And people would hold up things such as the, the UN Declaration on, of Human Rights. Look at that. We can all agree, can't we, on what is good. So Article 1 is common sense to you and me. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They're endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. And we all say, amen. And they go, well, no, not if I'm, I'm not a Christian. You mustn't say that. But uh, we all say, yes, all are equal. It's just a couple of problems with that. The first is, lots of people don't agree with it. So lots of Western academics would say, that's just cultural imperialism. You can't tell other people that. You have groups such as Amnesty International say, it's entirely deficient as a document. As a minimum, there must be the the right to pacifism. It's deficient as a document. So you get lobbying groups who disagree with it. But then I guess most significantly in global terms... Lots of the Arab world would disagree with vast amounts of it and just say no. And you have no right to impose your culture 
upon my culture. So, uh, 2013 poll in Pakistan. 88% of men and women felt that a wife must always obey her husband. In Bangladesh, 59% of the population, men and women, felt that family honor killings of women were entirely justifiable. I think that's appalling, don't you? But are you going to tell that to a whole culture? You're wrong? Yeah, well, you could do that. They would just say, no, you are wrong. And then where do you go? Do you see the problem? Actually, we're not all moving to a consensus. And this is slightly provocative, but I, I, I think if you, if you assume that, that humanity is just moving towards a consensus on what is right and what is wrong, then you never spend time with anyone who's different from you. You just live in your own ghetto. You're not aware of what other cultures are like sometimes. It's racist if you think that because you're not aware, no understanding. That's the first problem. It's just not true. People aren't moving that way. The second, I think, is even more striking. By that logic, is it therefore, a thing's only true, a thing's only wicked if the majority of humanity agrees on it. So everyone thinks that slavery is wrong now. But what if you go back 250 years when the majority of the world thought it was fine? So does that mean it was fine back then? I'm really uncomfortable with saying that, aren't you? But you have to say that if you think that ethics just evolve over time. You've got no get-out. But if you have a divine lawgiver, you say, no, that's wrong. God has said it's wrong. See, it's so easy if you're a Christian. It's wonderful. You know what is right and wrong. So, Martin Luther King, when he's crusading on, uh, on uh, civil rights... Just repeatedly just quotes the Bible. He quotes the Bible. The Bible says this. When he write, when he's, uh, his famous letter from Birmingham jail, when he's imprisoned for uh, breaking the law, and he's criticized by uh, uh, some church leaders for breaking the law. Uh, his famous letter, he put it this way. You ask me, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? Simple. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the law of God. It's very simple if you're a Christian, he says. You look at what God says. Is it agree or does it disagree? Now contrast that with the uh, ever quotable, because he's consistent often, Richard Dawkins. It's put to him, how do, you, how do you argue with that sort of thing? How do you argue with brutality? How do you argue if uh, three teenagers break into an old man's house and kill him in order to steal his wealth? And his reply? Well, I couldn't ultimately argue intellectually against somebody who did something I found obnoxious. I think I could finally only say, well, in this society, you can't get away with that. And I'd call the police. And she's just being consistent. I can't say you're wrong. I can only say I don't like it and you won't get away with it. So do you see, if if there isn't a God who says this is wicked and this is good, how's the way, the only way you can have a coherent, cohesive society is coercion. Coercion, police, military, whatever it is. If there is no God who says right from wrong. No, we don't think that way. 
But we're living on Christian credit in this country. These assumptions that are built into our culture, they're Christian assumptions. And from India, Vishal Maghamwadi would say, you're just forgetting that. You're historically committing suicide here. So we need God to say what is good and what is evil. Otherwise, all we can say is, I don't like that. I feel that it's evil. But we can never say, objectively, that's wrong. Okay, what is evil? Very hard to say unless there's a divine lawgiver. More briefly, let Jesus define evil. Let Jesus define evil. Now, undoubtedly, of course, there's someone here who's going to say or going to think, well, doesn't belief in God just permit you to, doesn't permit people to do all kinds of loony things? I mean, we see in the press all the time, Islamic State. They say God allows us, God tells us, kill infidels. Yes, that, of course, is true. Religious extremism is abhorrent, just as secular extremism is abhorrent. It's abuse of power. And the 20th century has taught us that. That it is the secular extremism that caused certainly the most damage in that century. So it matters who your God is. And that's why I'd say you, you need to let Jesus define what is good and what is evil. So just that little extract we had read from Luke 6, it's kind of the famous bit that people sometimes know of Jesus, the sort of turn your other cheek bit, the Sermon on the Mount bit. Let me read you again, uh, Luke 6, verse 35. Love your enemies, says Jesus. Love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now, you know, there's, there's not, they're not just inspiring words. That is how Jesus lived. He came and he died and he gave his life for people who opposed him. He came and he died and he gave his life for people who'd rejected God like you and me. He lived out his own words. And those who trust in him, follow him, those who are Christians, they live that way too. Oh, look, you... When it comes to assessing anyone's belief, you, when it comes certainly to uh, assessing someone's faith, you, you've got to look at the people who follow the founder, not the exceptions. Of course, there are people who call themselves Christians who have done nutty things. Of course, there are. There are nutters in all sorts of groups. But you, you've got to say, does this person who calls himself a Christian follow what Jesus taught? That's what you've got to ask yourself. I was reading recently of... Uh, communist uh, Romania and uh, many stories are told of uh, the Christians in communist Romania uh, Richard Vernbrand is the sort of most famous who, who stood up but uh, I read the account of John Stanescu he was a church p- pastor in Bucharest but he was imprisoned for his preaching he was just preaching the Bible and, and preaching against the communist regime you know, he was imprisoned and um, uh, once in prison uh, he just kept on preaching they just couldn't stop him so uh, those who were in a cell with him, the inmates with him, he, do you know Jesus Christ? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Uh, and the guards got very annoyed with him and told him to stop. And he said, well, do you know about Jesus Christ? Let me tell you about it. And he, just, he was just one of those irrepressible characters. The bloke in charge of the prison was a man named Colonel Album, who uh, heard of this, got wind of this, and came down and listened to him and said, you must stop. And he said, well, I'm worried. I need to, do you know about Jesus Christ? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And he ordered the man beaten. And Stanescu said to him, you know that there is a God in heaven 
He sees everything and he will judge you. Apparently Colonel Alban just got even more and says, give me that stick and went about beating him themselves. But before he had a chance to do that, he was summoned back to his office. Some of his superiors had arrived. So he had to, oh, later, later Stilescu. So he went back to his office. Apart from he'd just been denounced. It's often the case, isn't it? In a communist regime, backstabbing, he'd been denounced as being uh, a traitor to the communist cause, to, uh, to Ceausescu there. And so an hour later, he found himself in the same cell as John Stanescu and a number of other inmates who very probably went about lynching him. But Stanescu threw his arms around the bloke, Colonel Alban, and took repeatedly blow after blow himself until their rage had subsided. And afterwards, of course, the colonel asked the inevitable question, why did you do that? And Stanescu's reply, I live for Jesus. I always have him before my eyes. I also see him in my enemy's eyes. Beware of a faith without a cross. It's a striking phrase, isn't it? If someone is holding a belief passionately, or if it's an aggressive one, you're in trouble. If it's an aggressive, secular one, you're in trouble. But if someone is holding a belief passionately, and it's one of Jesus Christ who died for his enemies, don't be worried by that. You ought to embrace that. So let Jesus define evil, not any other form of God. Last little thing. What is evil? Very difficult to say, unless there's a lawgiver, a divine lawgiver. Let Jesus define evil. Last little thing. Jesus will judge evil. We finally make it to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. One of those places where Jesus is very clear that there will be a day of Judgment, he's talking to his disciples, not general public. But let me pick it up, uh, Luke 12 and verse 2. Little verse 2. Jesus says, There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. In other words... There will be perfect justice. No miscarriages, nothing arbitrary. Every action committed, every word whispered is observed by the Lord and he'll judge accordingly. And perfectly, and it will be heaven for some and hell for others. Jesus is content to say that. And that is a good thing. You know, that is a good thing. Because if we work on the assumption that there's a God, we don't want a God who dotes upon perpetrators of real evil in a grandfatherly fashion. We don't want that. We don't want the mass murderers welcomed in with a, well, you know, you had tough love in your family growing up, didn't you? You had a nasty dad, so not to worry. Let me affirm your basic goodness, Idi Amin. Let me affirm your basic goodness, Robert Mugabe, and say, you made a few mistakes, but not to worry, hey, come on in and enjoy the party with everyone else. We don't want that. Can't bear that thought. And if you've personally known evil, that is an abhorrent thought that there is no justice. Uh, Winston Churchill, always good with a phrase or two. He said, put it this way, for me, the evidence that God existed was this. This. 
The evidence that God had to exist was the existence of Lenin and Trotsky for whom a hell was needed. See what he's saying? I look at the the crimes of men like that and think they are so abhorrent, I I just can't tolerate the idea that there isn't a place of justice for them. Therefore, there's got to be a God to make sense of this world. I just can't bear the thought that there isn't. You need that hope of justice in the future. Oh, it makes a difference in this world too. Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, in South Africa. Uh, I mean, probably a political leader before he was a spiritual one. But of course, he was in the vanguard of those campaigning for equality for uh, blacks in South Africa in the 80s. He put it this way, reflecting upon uh, his experience there. God cares about justice and injustice. God is in charge. That is what had upheld the morale of our people. To know that in the end, good will prevail and evil will be judged. When you read passages such as Luke chapter 12, again, let me pick it up at verse 4. How important, what extraordinary comfort to know this if you're brutalized under an apartheid regime. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. No individual is forgotten by God. No evil committed against you is neglected by the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to know that justice is coming? Because so often it doesn't take place in this world. What do you do with Arnos Lustig's test? Do you see this hardwired into us is the cry that some things are evil and we're not content with I can't say that's evil, I just don't like it and you can't get away with it. We want to cry out to the heavens, as it were, that's wicked. That's wrong. It's deeply wired into us. We want there to be a God who has laid down a law and said, just, wicked. We want there to be a day of justice. And in Jesus Christ, we have a model, a God we can follow. Don't you want that to be true? I think deep down we all do. Let me lead us in brief prayer. Uh, Father, these are not light issues. Uh, For some of us, they're very distant issues. They seem out there and academic and our lives are fine. And what do we care? For others, we we know evil uh, and we've experienced it uh, and met it quite close. But Father, either way, how wonderful to know that there is a, a good personal moral God who has said what is right and what is wrong. And therefore, we know how to live in this world. We have a pattern to follow in Jesus Christ and we know that justice is coming. And Father, no matter where we are in our thinking on these things, would you help us understand more and more of why that is wonderful and why that is true? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Now, look, if, if um, uh, we'd be different places, some of us Christians and um, just encouraged in one sense by that or thinking that through, uh, not all would be here. I'm sure that's the case, and that's always the case here on a Sunday. But, and if you sort of rage and you're sort of deeply skeptical and one or two faces look quite skeptical, uh, do come and grab me afterwards. Uh, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts, why I'm wrong, why you think I need to nuance things. I, I'd love to hear that. Uh, so please don't leave in anger. Uh, come and uh, vent it at me. Would be much better.